The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. Who is you, man? Who, me? Yeah, nigga, you. Same man in front. That car. Who is you, Sharon? I'm me, man. I ain't trying to be nothing else. Oh, okay, so you, you hard now. Hey there, and welcome back to Represent. I'm your host, Aisha Harris. And that's right, we are talking about Moonlight again. We acknowledge that we have talked about Moonlight a lot, but we are in Oscar season, and the film got a lot of nominations. And today we are lucky enough to have a woman who has made history at the Oscars, Joy McMillan, who was a co-editor on Moonlight and is the first black woman to be nominated in the best editing category. As a sidebar, she's only the second black person to be nominated following Hugh A. Robertson's nod almost 50 years ago for Midnight Cowboy. So this is kind of a big deal. But first, let me acknowledge my friend to the left of me, a familiar voice, the host of Turner Classic Movies, Tiffany Vasquez. You're back. I'm back. <laughs> Yay. Thanks so much for joining us today. It is my absolute pleasure. How are things going at TCM, by the way? Things are good. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's... Oscar season. It is Oscar obviously. season, and we are in the month that is 31 days of Oscar on TCM. Yes. Uh, it's really cool because this month we are going in alphabetical order. Oh, really? Have mm-hmm. you, has that ever happened? I don't... I, not to I my knowledge. Yeah. That certainly didn't happen last year or in the last few years. Uh, but it's very cool because it gets really, really good just like banger after banger after banger. And you're yeah. like, oh, okay, I don't ever want to turn off TCM. The hits keep coming. Yeah, yeah. so it's good. They played Dreamgirls the other night. What? Wait, yeah. when do you start incorporating stuff that's not like old? Right. <laughs> well, during <laughs> or normal... Or cl- quote-unquote classic? Yeah. They only uh, play movies from that recent whenever they have either 31 Days of Oscar or some other type of specific programming thing. Like, they played Anchorman uh, a few months ago, and that's because Greg Proops hosted a whole history of slapstick comedy and film. Okay. So it was, like, a very comprehensive view of movies from silent era till now, and so Anchorman was, like, the now example. Got it. And... For 31 Days of Oscar, they will play anything that has had any sort of Oscars attention Mm. at all. Well, speaking of Oscars, we are here because we are doing our segment, 
which I still don't have a good theme song for. <laughs> guess who's coming to Oscar? <laughs> oh, and I guess this is a point to note that the last time I sang our theme song, I misspoke and said in my Ethel Barrymore voice when I really meant in my Ethel Merman voice. Okay. <laughs> As one of our listeners so kindly pointed out on Facebook, shout out to to Margaret Frischetti. Frischette? If I said your name wrong, I apologize. But thank you for calling me out. I did mean Ethel Mer- Merman. <laughs> <laughs> Star of lots of things. Yeah. But there's no business like right. show. Anyway, so we are here. <laughs> I guess the good old <laughs> Ethel Barrymore voice. <laughs> I don't even know that. I've seen an Ethel Barrymore movie or two, but I could not name what her voice actually sounds yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, it's just just enunciated pretty well in the big theater family, I guess. I don't yes, know. yes, yes. <laughs> so we're here <laughs> to talk about... West Side Story. Yes. And I mean, as listeners probably know, I'm kind of mildly obsessed with this movie. <laughs> a few, actually, like about a month ago, we had our episode with the wonderful, the legend, the goddess, Queen, Queen, Queen Rita Moreno, mm-hmm. EGOT winner and mm-hmm. star of West Side Story. She won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress as Anita. Yes. And she was the first Latina woman to do so. And yeah, we're here to talk about it because I know how much you love it. Yeah. And also Rita Moreno, and also you're Puerto Rican mm-hmm. and from New York. So <laughs> I am. <laughs> so I figured this was a good conversation to have. Yeah. Um, so when was the last time you watched it? A few months ago. I saw uh, I saw a little bit of it last night again. But a few months ago, I decided to, for Giphy, gif the whole movie. What? So, I, <laughs> so I watched it, or some parts I just watched over and over and over and over again in yeah. infinite loops. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's a lot of uh, wow. Yeah. And it's a long movie. It's like two and a half hours. It's a long movie. Almost three hours. It took me a very long time to do it. <sighs> wow. Bow down. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I so I rewatched it in preparation for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I ha- I don't think I had seen it in. A while. It's been over a year since I last watched it. I mean, obviously, I listen to the soundtrack fairly frequently. I I I watch clips sometimes because America is like the best. It is the dance scene. Is America, the actual best. Oh, it's so good. I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America. Everything free in America. For a small fee in America. Okay. But I, I think it's really interesting to go back and watch it in the context of now because obviously, well, I mean, I think people know what West Side Story is about. But just to give a very brief recap, it is it was originally a Broadway stage show, an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet set in at what was then present day or like contemporary 1950s New York. Um, and it's it's uh, about two gangs, warring gangs, the uh, white gang known as the Jets and the Sharks, who are the Puerto Rican gang, and they ha- are having a turf war. And at the center of it is uh, Tony, who is the white mm-hmm. guy. He's the Romeo. Yeah. And Maria, who is the Juliet. Mm-hmm. And Tony and Maria are played by Richard Beamer. Is it Beamer or Bamer? I thought it was Bamer. It's probably Bamer. But- Richard Bamer. We'll pronounce it that way. <laughs> if it's wrong, I'm sorry. And Natalie Wood yeah. plays Maria. The very Russian <laughs> <laughs> Natalie Wood. Yeah. Her real name is Natasha. Well, Natalie Wood's given name is Natasha, and she's very much of Russian ancestry. Yes. Uh, but she plays the Puerto Rican Maria. She sure does. <laughs> <laughs> so first, I just want to get into a little bit of 
sort of the many critiques this movie has had, particularly about the way it portrays the Puerto Ricans. And I'm curious as to when did you first encounter the film and how did it make you feel? Because obviously this is a movie, and it's been noted before, this is a movie that is one of the first, if not the first movies, American movies that is very explicitly about Puerto Ricans. And like the the word Puerto Rican is referred to and their ethnicity is referred to throughout the movie. Right. And how many can you really name since? Uh, not many. <laughs> yeah. Not, um, if J-Lo starred in it and she was playing like an actual Puerto Rican. Which doesn't happen often either. I don't even. I, actually, that hasn't happened because when she was in Selena, she was obviously playing a Mexican-American. Mexican. Mm-hmm. Has uh, J-Lo ever played a Wedding planner, kid? Italian. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, she she has played Latina before, uh, right. but they sort of go for the generalization. Uh, I mean, in, in Monster-in-Law, they acknowledge that she's right. Latina, but they don't say what kind. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's – growing up, uh, I always knew about West Side Story. That's just – the movie you know about. If you are a Puerto Rican in New York, you just always know. I feel about like it's West like story. the Wiz for Black people. Probably. probably, yeah, it probably is. Which I always knew about the Wiz too. Um, but you just always know about it, and I I loved it growing up because I really did have no other examples. There was nothing else that I could point out and say, oh, someone who comes from where I come from is in this. Other than music, I mean, when I was young, wasn't quite like big pun yet, but you had people like Lisa Lisa and the freestyle scene and, yeah. and things like that. So in movies, this was all I felt like I had. And for a very long time, I thought all the people playing Puerto Ricans in it were Puerto Rican because I just just yeah. assumed that movies wouldn't lie to me. <laughs> Oh, remember those days? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I found out only one person in a lead role and some extras um, were actual Latinos or actually Puerto Rican. Right. And Rita Moreno yes, is actually Puerto is Rican. actually Puerto Rican. I never... I never thought Natalie Wood was because I knew Natalie when I first encountered West Side Story. I think it was like 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. I'd already known Natalie Wood from Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah. And I was like, I don't think she was Puerto Rican in that. So she (laughs) must be white. Um, (laughs) uh, But I could have sworn that George Chakiris was at least Latino because his last name to me, even though really now as an older person and person who's more aware, his name is very Greek and he is Greek. Um, But I thought it was like Chakiris. But he's not. They just brown faced him. And... So so I, that's kind of what I want to talk about right now is the, the concept of the brown face, because mm-hmm. that's definitely happening. And it's not just happening to George Kiris. It's happening to Rita Moreno, who is Puerto Rican. Like she is dark in this movie. And right. she's never. Well, not that she hasn't looked dark before, because if you know anything about her story, she spends a lot of her career playing people of completely other ethnicities. And I think also, often was put in brown face but it's it's so strange that she she's playing someone who is actually from her country from puerto rico and yet she is also brown faced which is crazy to me yeah i mean it's just one of the many examples where even if you are of the culture you're supposed to represent you still have to adhere to whatever hollywood's definition of your culture is Mm -hmm. and that's 
beyond messed up. I don't even know how to how to describe. Yeah, it's it's terrible. I mean, even Josie de Guzman, who was the actress who played Maria in the 1980 revival on Broadway of West Side Story, they made her go and put brown face on, too. And she was like, wait, I don't understand. I'm the Puerto Rican one here. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that people don't realize that, like, Puerto Ricans be, can be both white and and darker. Like, yes. that Which is why I think also partially it was easy for you to think that Natalie Wood could be could be Puerto Rican because she like I've seen Puerto Ricans who are just as light as yeah. Natalie Wood is. It's completely believable. I mean, I'm pretty fair skinned. My I have cousins who are even lighter than me. I have cousins or family members. My stepfather, my grandfather are much, much darker than me. And there's just a spectrum. I think it also says something, the fact that the lead actress who was not even Puerto Rican or Latina mm-hmm. was not round faced. Right. What? <laughs> right. So there's that's that's another thing too. It's like you've got to make you've got to make all the sharks be the same color brown and they look greasy. So there's a scholar who wrote a few years ago a book about the making of West Side Story. His name is Ernesto R. Acevedo Munoz. And he wrote the book West Side Story as Cinema, The Making and Impact of an American Masterpiece. And we can link to that in the show notes. But he spoke a bit about the fact that that whole greasy look, like they all, I think most of the cast members who were sharks had to like shoot, they put like some sort of shoe black or something in their Mm -hmm. hair to make their hair darker. I'm sure that contributed to it making conveniently because I think that was what they were going for was like the greasy look and clearly the jets don't have that same look at all right and then of course they make tony and maria look like they were meant to be together so they are similar in appearance natalie wood has that accent but (laughs) (laughs) how bad is it i guess it depends i never used to think it was bad when i was little and then i grew up (laughs) and was like oh this isn't this isn't that good. Um, <laughs> it's just, I know that they did research on Puerto Ricans in New York, but I don't really know how that's even implemented in this movie. And I'm saying all that, and I love this movie. Oh, yeah. But I we just, both love it. Yeah, yeah, we both love this movie. It's just, I don't see where they ever took any care to actually really portray what Puerto Ricans in this city were like, especially at the time. And I think it's further shown by the fact that this story wasn't supposed to originally be Puerto Ricans and and then just a conglomerate of white. I don't know. I don't even know what. (laughs) Well, Tony's Irish Italian. Right. Tony, I think, is supposed to be Italian. But then Riff is Polish. Because at some point someone called. Oh, um, I think Bernardo calls him like a yellow bellied Polack chicken. So like I think it's a a hybrid. It, they're just white because right. white can just be anything mm-hmm. except brown. <laughs> and originally it was supposed to be um, one gr- gang was supposed to be Jewish. Another gang was supposed to be Irish. Right. In the stage version. Yeah. 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 And then and then they all became white, I guess, and in, in culture. <laughs> and then they were like, OK, let's move on. And then one day 
some people, uh, producers, I don't remember who, they were in L.A. And they were like, hey, these Chicano gangs are, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening out here in L.A. Let's find like a New York version of that. So they went from thinking maybe Chicanos, so maybe uh, Mexican gangs. And then they thought, oh, wait, we could do we could do just like a black gang. And then somehow it then further evolved into a Puerto Rican gang. So even just showing that procession of what they're thinking is it's like it's like, oh, what, what group? What Which ones can we pick? <laughs> and then yeah. they just landed upon Puerto Rican. And it's like, you know, that's pretty evident and that and that's shown in the movie. It's like, okay, well, we'll make whatever group this is be as different other as possible. And that's and we'll make the musical around that. I I get that sense. But then so Acevedo Munoz, he argues in his book that the sharks in the movie actually come off better than the white gang in the movie. He says... And I quote, I argue that however problematic the representation of Puerto Ricans might be, in West Side Story, we come out looking better than the other gang. And just to insert myself, Acevedo Muniz is also Puerto Rican. And he goes on to say, this comes down to the use of language where the Jets speak in fragmented slang that is incomprehensible, mispronounced, whereas the five Puerto Ricans that have full lines of dialogue speak in full sentences with proper phrasing, grammar, and pronunciation. And in parentheses, he says, with the exception of the accent. And he also notes that the sharks are the only ones we see of their family life. We we know Maria and Anita. We see them in the dress shop. We see them talking about, like, her parents. And Bernardo is her brother. And we see them working, whereas we only see the, the jets, like, in full-on jet mode, like, we're in this mode. Like, do you agree with that assessment? I do. I do. That, And it just further emphasizes that things can be a lot of things you know this, yeah. this movie can be all of those things the song america uh gives a perspective to the duality of th- of even coming over to america from puerto rico even within the puerto rican culture whereas they're like yeah not all of us really wanted to come here but it wasn't great over there and this is the land of opportunity so we're going to try and make it work but now that we're here we see that we're not exactly welcomed with open arms. And in that way, the movie lyrics are way different for America than the original lyrics. They sure are. And that's this is another point he makes is that like in the original stage show, they switch. It's different. So in the movie, we have Anita and Bernardo going back and forth with the main lyrics. Lots of new housing with more space. Lots of doors slamming in our face. Better get rid of your accent. Life can be bright in America. If you can fight in America. Life is all right in America. If you're all white in America. Bernardo is on the side of like, we're here, but like you said, like, but we're here kind of reluctantly right. and things are not very good for us while Anita is like, things are great. Like, mm-hmm. or at least they're better than they are, they were there. But in the stage version, it's Anita and one of the other shark girls, Rosalia, who goes back and forth <clears throat> with Anita. And Anita's still on the side of like, things are better here. But Rosalia like doesn't give, it's very stereo- like, it's very Latino stereotypical. Yeah. When I will go back to San Juan, when will you shut up and get gone? So there's the back and forth, like, Rosalia first, Anita. It's like, I'll give my cousins a free ride. 
And Anita's like, how you get all of them inside? Mm-hmm. Which is like, all right, yeah, we, Latinas like to all mm-hmm. roll in 10 in a car, like a con car. Uh, which that lyric is not in the movie. Um, There's a line about disease, like it's a disease-infested island, something like that. Right. It's just really bad. And when you compare that with the movie lyrics, you have Anita saying, life and the girls saying, life can be bright in America. Bernardo saying, if you can fight in America. And the girls reply, life is all right in America if you're all white in America. Which, I mean, these lyrics are pretty great i, I know that's that's the first dance number i went to gif because i i needed the if you're all white in america yeah yeah aseptually mm-hmm. and i grew up thinking that yeah the sharks are a way better uh if you're gonna side with one gang you're gonna side with the sharks but i grew up thinking that i'm just being um just like you know <laughs> picking a side clearly yeah yeah uh, but it is true you you do see more of what they go through you feel a lot more for like Anita when she's harassed in the candy store <sighs> near near the end. And the one person who is the voice of reason, I guess, at the end of it all is Maria, who's saying, you know, why are we why are we killing each other? You hate now I can kill, you know, that that whole monologue that she goes on. Although uh, there's a lot less mourning going on for her brother than. Oh, than do not, do love. not even get me started. I it's that has always bo- bothered me. Yeah. So spoiler alert: <laughs> uh, a rumble finally happens between the Jets and the Sharks, and Bernardo kills Riff, and then out of like, well, I've seen different interpretations of like why Tony does it. Sometimes it's like very menacing and he's like vengeance and other times it's just like he's just like so out of it anyway tony kills bernardo and the way in which maria just does not give any fucks (laughs) (laughs) it's your brother (laughs) and you met this dude yesterday yeah literally yesterday this all takes place over the course of like 24 maybe 36 hours yeah i think it's like they say sometimes that the um the opening montage could like symbolize a few uh weeks or so of of like moving in or whatever but in the movie but the actual story of the movie i think is two days yeah it's about 36 hours (laughs) (laughs) and she's not warning her brother no no she's not (laughs) and and that's like the whole concept of like a boy like that, where their duet between Maria and Anita, right. where she's like, "You need to be grieving for your brother," and Maria is like, "No, <laughs> <laughs> you don't understand. I love Tony just like you loved." Fr- no, it's not the no, same girl. Like, no it's girl, not. it's not the same. <sighs> yeah, that's really- which could I mean, if you want to like even dissect further, then it's like, okay, is the movie saying something about? the worth of a Puerto Rican life? Like, is that uh, something that we could also nitpick at? Probably. Yeah, Yeah, I I think it does. And of course, Chino then fells Tony and he gets arrested. Yeah, he's the one that gets arrested out of everything that happens. I mean, granted, he is... He did kill. He did did kill Tony. He did did commit murder. (laughs) And also, like, the other two who killed are also dead. So, like, they can't really be arrested. They are super dead. So... This movie was a was a huge deal when it came out, and I, I was doing a little bit of research about it, mm-hmm. um, trying to find some sort of while it was being made and what people were saying about it at the time. And of, not surprisingly, no one made any fuss about the fact that Nellie would 
Oh, and yeah. Georgia Kira's were not Puerto Rican in the least. And it was just whatever. Oh, you didn't find the think pieces from 1961? <laughs> I, I, missed, I missed the Jezebel piece about mm-hmm. this. <laughs> and when Rita Moreno won, I also, like, wasn't able to find too much, like, excitement, at least from, like, mainstream news, like, The Times or whatever. They're just like, yeah, she won. Um, it seemed like that year the bigger thing was that uh, Sophia Loren won for playing. She became the first woman... I think first person to win a acting award for playing a role in a foreign language. Right. For two women. Yes. And so that seemed to be what everyone was talking about and not the fact that Rita Moreno won and was the first Latina to do so. But she's talked about how like it had a huge effect on the Puerto Rican community and just the Latino community in general when she won. And that that was one of the first when she learned about that, that was like one of the first connections that she ever felt to like the her community, I think she talks. She talks about that in her memoir, and she's also said it in interviews. But yeah, she talks about in the memoir um, the day that she she was filming. I don't remember what movie in Thailand. She was abroad or, somewhere. She was abroad somewhere. Yeah, and she got a telegram that she was nominated, and it was a total shock to her. She was talking about that, and they gave her three days off from the movie in order to take the day to fly there, the day for the ceremony, and then the day to fly back. And she, again, did not expect to win, but when Rock Hudson called her name, she was, like, so shocked that she couldn't even do anything. Her whole acceptance speech fits into one gift. It's like three (laughs) words. I can't believe it! Good Lord! I'll leave you with that. Her run, um, when she gets up to accept it, her run to the stage where she, like, touches her face is, it kind of, it brings tears to my eyes every time. Yeah. I mean, granted that, you know, the nominations are not there and the roles are not there for Latino people. I do think going back to sort of your experience as a child and seeing that movie and how much it influenced you. That movie, I think, has also meant a lot, had a huge impact on the way Latino people and Puerto Ricans especially Mm -hmm. saw themselves. And even Rita Moreno has talked about, you know, her existence makes it so that people can at least see themselves a little bit in what she does. Like, even J-Lo has said she's, you know, same thing you said. I yeah. feel like you and J-Lo were the same, like... Oh, God. Well, not the <laughs> that same. Was, that, I would die from having the best compliment that's ever been. I, don't kill me, Aisha. I'm sorry. <laughs> I almost struck you down. But I feel like you and J-Lo were, like, the same little girl. Yeah. I mean, there's... There's if you are a Puerto Rican growing up in New York City, you have a similarity of experience. I don't want to simplify and say that we've all had the same life, of course, but there are certain, you know, founding foundation blocks. And one of them is West Side Story. It just is. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Tiffany. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. Always so happy to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you on. And I promise, unless you want to, next time you come on, you don't have to talk about Latina stuff. Because <laughs> I know the first time you came on, we talked about um, the get down, and that was very right. heavily. But it was so you. Yeah. And I you mean, also pitched that to me. It. Yeah, so. I did. It was definitely my idea. <laughs> okay. Definitely my idea. And this, for sure, I mean, 
I work with classic movies. I know. <laughs> I, I, I don't feel bad. I just, yeah. I'm just saying, next this time. Fit. Yes. yes, this fit. Yes, this fit perfectly. <laughs> I try my best. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank you. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. So longtime listeners are aware that last fall in episode 15, director Barry Jenkins sat down with us to talk about his ambitious coming of age story, Moonlight. And we, as well as many of our other recent guests who have name checked it here at Represent, ride for it pretty hard. But of course, no movie is the work of one person alone. We have a lot to get into in this conversation. So without further ado editor joy mcmillan thank you so much joy for coming on the show You're it's welcome. it's so awesome to have you on um i'm just really congr- first of all congratulations thank you so much on your oscar nomination thank you like i mean how does it feel <laughs> <laughs> this is your first oscar nomination so. yes this moonlight is i'm um, actually my first feature film credit nice and so to be nominated for an oscar your first time out you're like ooh. How do I beat that? Yeah. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> and you co-edited the movie with um, Nat Sanders. Yes. But mm-hmm. you are the first black woman to be nominated in this category. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have we've had lots of directors and, and writers and, and actors on, but editing is a is a different beast in a way and it's it's something that i think we don't often focus on as much so i would love for you to tell me first just a little bit about like what an editor does for (laughs) listeners like sort of what is your and i know that's hard to to say but like in general what is the editor's role within the film like within filmmaking it's it is really hard to say exactly what an editor does because i think we wear a lot of hats in the cutting room Um, But ultimately, I say that our main goal is to help facilitate the director's vision in their final product of their film. And a lot of times that can be, you know, a very hard task for us because um, when a director goes through production and they come back to the cutting room, if production didn't go the way they planned, then they sometimes bring that that baggage of like not necessarily – being as in love with their film as they were when they originally started out. Mm. Um, So sometimes we have to chip away at that and allow them to see that, yes, you have an amazing product on your hand and, you know, like we're only going to make it better, you know, from here on out. Um, With Moonlight, though, I feel like our process with Barry was so much fun because we've known each other for so long. Mm -hmm. So Barry, the director, James, the cinematographer, Adela, the producer, and Nat, the co-editor, um, we all went to film school together. Oh. So we've known each other for quite some time. And where did you guys go? Florida State University. Right, yeah. Yeah. And so that's how I got involved with Moonlight is because I didn't work with Barry and Nat on Medicine for Melancholy, but they had collaborated on that. And um, Barry and I worked together on his short film, Chlorophyll. And then we also did like some various commercials together with a company he's a part of called Strike Anywhere. Hmm. So the film is divided into three sections. Mm -hmm. And you also, as we mentioned earlier, you were 
working together with Nat Sanders. So did you divide your time? Like, what is it like to work with someone else? And how did you divide that time among the three parts, if you did it all? Or was it all like you were working on each part? Well, when it first started out, we were um, initially just kind of cutting scenes. And then the way it was shaking out was that I was cutting a lot of the scenes for Act 3. And Nat was cutting a lot of the scenes for Acts 1 and 2 mm-hmm. with some overlap. And so when Barry came in, um, Barry worked with Nat on Acts 1 and 2, and then he worked with me on Act 3. Mm. And so Nat and I, it's interesting because a lot of people are like, did you guys have to change your style, you know, to work together? And, you know, like, was it hard? And I was, it was actually very effortless. And I think it's because Nat and I, um, previ- like prior to Moonlight, we worked together on um, the fifth season of Girls, and we worked together on the first season of Togetherness. And mm. so... We've been in cutting rooms with with each other for probably um, probably like two going on three years now. Mm. And so we've always just been very like open and like have an amazing, you know, dialogue about like what we like about what someone's doing or what we don't like what's happening. And so it's just never been a, a place where you have to feel like you have to be mindful of what you say. We're very open and honest about you know, our collaboration together. What's the the back and forth like in terms of he's doing the cutting, but you're also sort of there looking? And sh- I'm just trying to get an idea of like, <laughs> well, it's what funny. it's like. It's funny because we were um, on this, you know, process. Um, our budget for post wasn't very big. Mm. And so we actually were working in um, just one room. And usually our working environment is I have an office and Nat has an office. But on this one, there was just one office and me and Nat were basically working on opposite ends of the room. And um, I was working with headphones on and he was working um, with speakers and Barry would literally work with Nat on something and then be able to turn his chair around and come over to me and work with me on another scene. And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of how we were working. And then sometimes Barry and Nat would be working on something and they'd be like, hey, Joy, turn around and look at this. And I would literally just turn around and watch a scene. Yeah. Um, and vice versa, we'd say the same thing to Nat. If he was working on something by himself, like, hey, Nat, come over and take a look at this. And so it was a very collaborative process. Like, we could hear what each other was working on. Yeah. And so um, sometimes I would just, like, I would be working on a scene, but I could hear what they were working on. And I would just call out, like, like how it was before. <laughs> or nice. don't change that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And I always say, like, Moonlight didn't feel like work. Because mm-hmm. I think it's because we've all been close friends for so long. And it was just so much fun, like, going to lunch together and being able to talk about, you know, um, a restructure that we were thinking about or just being able to, like – work on something with your best friends is a, such a rare opportunity. Mm. So, like, everything else that's followed this process to me has just, you know, basically just been, like, icing on the cake because the whole process of making Moonlight, to me, is such a cherished experience and, like, one that, you know, I'll remember for the rest of my life. And then to see the world appreciate something that you spent so much time and energy and you gave so much love towards is just... You know, to me, it's still kind of unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about, since I know you, like, the third act was sort of your main domain, mm-hmm. can you sort of break down the process? Because 
of that act, specifically the diner scene, because this diner scene, oh man, I, I just, <laughs> I really, I love it. And I think that, you know, a lot of people keep going back to that diner scene because it's just so much happens. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the process for that? And I guess for listeners, if you, in case you haven't seen Moonlight yet, <laughs> just to briefly set up the diner scene, um, I guess this is sort of a spoiler, but um, you have the older Chiron now, who's now, now known as Black, mm-hmm. played by Trevante Rhodes, and you have Kevin, who is played by, why am I blanking on his name? Andre Holland. Andre Holland. Yes, thank you. How can I forget? Andre Holland. <laughs> yes, thank you. I also think he's absolutely beautiful. Um, <laughs> played by Andre Holland. They have reunited after years of not seeing each other, and Kevin is working at a diner, and black goes to visit him and so they they're reunited for the first time yeah what was that like for you (laughs) it's funny because i remember when i was first putting that together because basically like the first two acts are based off of terrell's play you know and moonlight black boys like blue and the third act is completely you know made up of barry like barry wrote the third act and (laughs) so to me it was i was kind of nervous about the third act because not a ton happens in that diner scene and I think we're in that diner for like five different scenes because there's a time jump. Yeah. There's a, there's quite a few long takes. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And so when I was first watching the dailies, I was just amazed at how um, James and Barry were able to take this diner and create this environment, you know, by angles and um, long takes and camera moves. They were able to make each scene feel different, even though we were in the same location. Mm-hmm. And so for me, and um, in, like in editing that, I, my main goal was to preserve the long takes as much as I could based off of performances and the camera movements and making sure that they were all in sync. But another thing is that you know, we are like Moonlight's a single camera movie. So we didn't, you know, shoot multi cameras. And so it's when you don't shoot multiple cameras, it's hard sometimes if your actors aren't giving it when they're on camera and when they're off. Right. But in the diner, it was, you know, Trevante and Andre just did an amazing job. You know, whether they are on camera or off camera, they are both challenging each other and really, you know, embodying the essence of these characters. And there's one take um, when Andre turns around and he's next to the jukebox and he looks at Kevin. And I remember just being like, almost like kind of, feeling like a person I was like I'm I'm watching this but does he know that he's being recorded because it just felt so personal mm-hmm. you know and it felt so intimate and I'm like oh my gosh I feel like I'm like peeping in and spying on these people having this really you know private moment and it was just because their acting was so good and then so as an editor you're 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 working more so as a preservationist you know kind of like trying to preserve these moments and these beats and these looks and these, you know, amazing camera movements and trying to combine them and make them, you know, reflect everything that, you know, Barry's trying to say in the scene. And so for me, it was, um, it was looking at every take and, you know, choosing the best performance from each actor and also looking for like 
the hidden gems that sometimes actors will give you. Like, you know, there was some lines of improv that I kept in because I'm like, it's it's funny when you're nervous, you know, people tend to like make a joke or something to kind of break the tension, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and Andre did that and it was just so nice and so organic. So I remember keeping that in. And, like, Do you remember which one it was? Yeah, it was, um, he says better than your SpaghettiOs. And then Geronte oh. says my SpaghettiOs go hard. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> So good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great moment. Yes. Definitely. I love that that was improvised. Yeah. 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 That's so cool. Yeah. One of the one of the other things that like Barry and I discussed was just how unique that scene was. Like we rarely ever we see people making food all the time. Mm-hmm. We see you know, and to the point where it's like almost like food porn in certain movies. Like I think of a movie like Chef with yes. John Favreau, where it's just like we're going to show him, we're going to show him like you know chopping and dicing and, yeah. and sprinkling and and adding all these and and it's always like about the love of the food. But with this movie, with that scene, it's like we've never really seen a man make such a beautiful and loving meal for another man, especially a black two black guys yeah it's one of my favorite scenes yeah because i'm a foodie so i watch like chef's table and top <laughs> chef <laughs> nice. and i just you know the fact that i got to cut a scene of someone making a meal i was like super pumped about um but with that it's funny because i don't i i remember asking barry i was like does andre cook like is like does he like you know and barry's like i don't think so you know i think he you know like i'm sure he like knows how to cook but yeah. he just there were some things that he did that felt like a little professional, like cleaning the plate, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, putting the rice and the plastic, you know, and flipping it over. I'm like, this is great. You know, yeah. I remember watching the dailies and being like, this is, it's so detailed. And it's just, to me, it just showed how much he was excited, you know, to make this meal for Black. I guess for me, like a lot of times when I'm cutting together a montage, I do it without music. And so when... And the reason I do that is because I want to pay attention to the natural movement, be it the actor moving or the camera moving. And to me, that, you know, they blend themselves naturally into this whole kind of, you know, constructed, almost like, you know, I don't know exactly how to put it, but it kind of like they're moving together in this kind of like, symphony in my head I would guess so Mm -hmm. I'm like like the conductor and so I'm always paying attention to that when I'm like putting together a montage and then when I go back through I look at the actors you know like Andre was just giving like such little like little half smiles as he was like tasting stuff and Mm -hmm. so I like started I wanted to play some of those in the moments because it he really he wasn't just cooking, but he actually felt like he was cooking and thinking about what he was doing and who he was preparing it for. And it just so happened that when we laid down the the score that we wanted to use with the montage, it just naturally just fit so well together. And I was like, oh, that was just such a happy accident. You know? <laughs> didn't even know. Like to me, yeah. like I didn't even know that was going to happen, but. Yeah, I think that moment, and I feel like um, I read somewhere Bon Appetit, so that was like one of the top food scenes, and I was like, oh my god, nice. That when I read that, I was like, okay, 
now, you know, now I've arrived. <laughs> <laughs> I remember sending that to my sisters and be like, bon appetit. Imagine something I cut. You made it. <laughs> no. I'm like, Oscar nomination, whatever. Bon appetit, though. <laughs> Congratulations oh, on your Bon Appetit <laughs> scene <laughs> inclusion. <laughs> I love that. I I mean, speaking of your arrival, mm-hmm. you cut your teeth actually on reality TV. You did um, Surreal Life, right? Mm-hmm. And hey, I watched Surreal Life <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> I actually might have watched whichever season you... The Flavor Flav season. Oh, yeah. I did, actually. Whoa, wait, wait, wait. What was that like? <laughs> well, it's funny because it was literally my first year in Los Angeles. Was it? Yeah, it was my first year. Mm. And my actual very first reality show I worked on was a show called Outback Jack. <laughs> I don't remember that one. It only had one season. Okay. <laughs> and then from there, I went on to Surreal Life 3. And I remember working on Surreal Life 3 and thinking, like, this is going to be the end of reality television. I understand. Okay. I don't want nobody I'm to sorry. bother me right now. I understand. I felt my whole crew was against me. So I shut down. I was real angry. I wasn't talking to nobody. My whole crew was going to have a real effed up day. Little did I know that it was going to be like the catalyst of change. Thank you. (laughs) I'll blame you. (laughs) Actually, I I love reality TV. Yeah. It's fun. But like, I didn't, I had no idea it was going to rejuvenate Flavor Flav's career and just set, you know, be like the, the, you know, all of these other shows to follow after it. Yeah. But yeah, reality television is. I feel like in the post-production aspect, reality television is very challenging because we have very, very tight deadlines. We have, you know, we have to turn around episodes, you know, fairly quickly. And a lot of times we don't necessarily have as many people as we necessarily need. Mm -hmm. And so I think coming from reality television, I've always been very efficient. And so when I got into feature films, I realized that there's... There's still a lot to do, but you have more time to do it. Mm-hmm. And so because I had more time while I was in features that made me, you know, cut things on the side. So I would do short projects. I'd cut commercials. You know, I'd do anything I can get my hands on while working a full-time job as an assistant editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that led me to meeting um, Frankie Shaw. I cut her short from Smelf. And that led me to meeting Janixa Bravo, who I cut her short film, um, Man Rots from the Head. And then I also worked on her feature, Lemon. Yeah, that was yeah. premiered at Sundance this past yeah. January. Exactly. Oh, awesome. I haven't yeah. seen it yet, but it's, it so seems funny. like it did well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's a force to be reckoned with. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, she's fantastic. I imagine, though, it can be really easy to get stuck in that world. Oh, definitely. Like, how did you get out? Of reality television, <laughs> and especially you know the the thing about like what you're telling me is like you got a lot of these jobs by knowing people, and that is very much it seems like that's very much the way. Mm-hmm. It's really hard because in order to get into the Motion Picture Editors Guild, you have to get a hundred days of work, and usually it's non-union work 
because you're not a part of the union. Mm -hmm. And so when I started working in reality television, it was only supposed to be for 100 days to get my, you know, to, to get, get into the union. Yeah. 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 Um, and I ended up staying for two and a half years. And so, um, but it's hard because when you're coming out of college and, you know, you have all these bills to pay, you don't know much about the union. So you don't know, like, the union has benefits. They have a rate that you have to be paid by. You have to get overtime. You know, you're a young kid working on reality television where there's a flat rate. And um, but still, if someone's saying they're going to pay you, you know, like a thousand dollars a week to a college kid, that sounds like a lot of money, right. you know, back then. Yeah. And a lot of the shows just would roll over. Like I, you know, started out on Beauty and the Geek, and then I was on Biggest Loser, and then it just kept happening where there, you know, I got promoted, and then I was staying on, and then um, I got to a point where I was like, if I stay, you know, I'm going to get bumped up to editor. And then it's going to be that much harder to leave because, you know, to be 23 and an editor on a television show, that's huge, you yeah. know, be it reality or scripted. Especially as a black woman. Exactly. Because there, there are not that many. <laughs> not many of black us. Be- well, black <laughs> men, I think there's there's a fair amount. But when it comes to women, yeah. I, it's I've had a hard time tracking down yeah. names. It's hard. Did you have any mentors or any other black women you were working with Mm -hmm. at that level and and above? Yeah, my first um, feature film that I worked on was Talk to Me for Focus Features. Oh, right, with Mm -hmm. uh, Don Cheadle. Chiwetel. And Chiwetel. Yeah. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, they're both in it. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's been so long since I've seen that movie. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then, um, so the director was Casey Lemons, and Mm -hmm. then the editor was Terrilyn Shropshire. And so that was my first feature, and that was my first experience in, like, a feature film cutting room. Mm -hmm. And Terrilyn is just, she's amazing. Um, And just the way she conducts her cutting room, she just has so much respect for the people that she works with. And, you know, the thing that I realized that happens more on features than it kind of does in reality television is there's a lot of politics Um, when you, you know, get involved with studios and more money and there's just a certain way of like, you know, how to speak to people and who's allowed to see certain things and who's not allowed to see certain things and don't mention certain things around people. So it's a lot to like take in and mm-hmm. to remember and keep track of. But she did it with such grace and ease. And so I like I watched her and was like, OK, one day you know, I'm going to be like her. Yeah. <laughs> she seems to have it, you know, all in check. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, so last year, actually, uh, Variety had a report about the below-the-line jobs and the barriers that people of color and women have within that world. And one of the things they they said was, you know, um, a lot of the people that they interviewed for that that piece, they all came from very different backgrounds. They were some had grown up poor, some had grown up well-to-do, but none of them had any connection to the industry before getting in. And that seems to be like a big part of the issue with like the reason why the the doors are still closed is that we have too many people you know assuming that they are just not looking outside of their their circle of people and that there's that circle tends to be you know 
white if you're a white person. And <laughs> did you find that that was difficult to even tap into, even just like jumping into that world, making those connections? Or was it for, because you did go to film school, but mm-hmm. film school still sometimes doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to make those connections outside. Yeah. It just so happened for me that it, I had friends from film school who were able to get me these jobs you know, and put me in and and have me interview for these jobs. And so that, like, set me on the right track. But I think for a lot of people coming in and trying to get into, you know, these specific fields, like, it's really hard because the unions aren't – it's not like I want to be an editor, I join the union. You know, there's all these steps you have to take. And same for camera. Yeah. And then you have to pay your your initiation dues for, I think, editors. It's like 1500 and I think for cinematographers, I think it's like $15,000 or something to like join their union. 15K. Yeah. And so, <laughs> what? And so, wow. and that, that's that a in huge itself, barrier. that's a huge barrier. Yeah. You know, like even a lot of, like I know a lot of people, they won't join the union unless they know they have something that's going to help pay for that. Right. You know, in- initiation dues. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of reasons why you know there's a barrier of like why people aren't getting into these certain aspects of um, filmmaking. It's because it's you know it's not as easy as I think people think. Like, go, oh, I'm going to be an editor. I'm going to start editing. You right. know, it's like there's. You know, there's steps that you have to take to get into these fields. Yeah. So my final question, mm-hmm. which I ask all of my guests, is when is the last time you saw something on in a movie or on a TV show and you felt as though you were represented? And you can't. Oh. You can't say Moonlight. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard. Um. And I actually, like, I'm so behind on a lot of things. It can be, it could be something you watched a year ago. It could be oh, something. okay. Whenever the last time you remember it happening. I, w- I would say a different world. Is it bad that I had to go that far back? No. <laughs> Any opportunity I can get to talk about a different world, I will take. <laughs> well, I, the thing that I loved about a different world, it wasn't only that I felt like I saw... Um, myself represented but I also felt like I saw my cousins represented Mm. and so like to me it was one of the first times on television where I was like oh there's a whole kind of world of black people that you know I think people don't necessarily share a lot of you know and so I was like oh this is so cool um and then of course Debbie Allen's amazing (laughs) Ah, oh, Debbie, we gotta get her on the show. Oh, ah, she's her. so amazing. So, my, my friends and editor on Grey's Anatomy. Ah, uh, yeah, that's fun. And I was like, "Is there any way you can get me in there, see Debbie?" <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is your like? Who's your favorite character on Different World? Ugh. That's uh, that's another one because I love Whitley Gilbert, but I also love Dwayne Wayne, but I also love Jaleesa. Yeah. They're all so good. They are so good. A Different World is a great choice. I'm glad we got to chat about it briefly. <laughs> and thank you so much for, oh, thank you for, for coming on. Me. And good luck. Fingers crossed. Thank you. We'll see. Um, at the By the time this is released, it'll be a, like a little over a week before the Oscars happen. Okay. We're going to release it this Friday. So fingers crossed. I, I hope 
things go well. I hope you have at least, I hear that Academy Awards can be kind of boring, so I hope you're not too bored, like, <laughs> actually to be there. Uh, but, you know. Yeah. Well, my sisters will be there. Oh, good. Yeah. And I, th- I feel like there's a bar outside, someone told I'm me. I'm sure there's a oh, bar. okay. Well, then that would be too boring. <laughs> good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for listening all, and that's a wrap. Tiffany, it was a pleasure to have you join us again for that very fun discussion of West Side Story. And thank you, Joy, for letting us indulge in our love of Moonlight a bit more. Next week, we close out our Guess Who's Coming to Oscars series by revisiting a historic night in Academy Awards history, March 24th, 2002, also known as the night the Oscars finally solved racism. Or not. We'll have some very special guests on to discuss Halle Berry, Denzel Washington, and Sidney Poitier taking home major awards all in one night. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. And please make sure you rate us on iTunes if you haven't already. Your feedback really makes a difference for us and helps other people see the show on iTunes. And just so you know, we really love all the feedback we've been getting, and we think one of the best ways to keep in touch with our listeners is to do so on Facebook. So if you haven't already, like us on Facebook, go visit Facebook. We'll be posting a lot more and trying to start more conversations, and hopefully we can get to know you all a little bit better in the process. A Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Liptai. Andy Bars is chief content officer at Panoply. And as we mentioned earlier, you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Slate Represent. Music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Mm-hmm.